Welcome to The Leading Edge, Developing Officers for Command. I'm Senior Master Sergeant Eugene Christ from your 130th Public Affairs. This is the first episode of this 12-part series that will be published once a quarter. Now let's get to the content. Hey everybody. Good morning. Wow, what a great group. Either everyone's really eager to be here this morning or I made you come. Oh, that's right, I made you come. However, I really hope you're gonna come away from this enjoying the overall experience. Um, first of all, I'm Colonel Pat Chard. I'm the Vice Wing Commander here, if you don't know me. I know a lot of you really well in the room. Um, you know, I'm really looking forward to the introduction here of the 130th Airlift Wing's first pre-command officer force development program. So why are we doing this? Let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, and I'll tell you right off the bat, this projector is absolutely terrible. Um, we got a new one coming, but please bear with me. Um, you know, as it comes to how this projector kind of shows up here on the screen. Um, but just a little bit of background. You know, historically the wing has not had a defined pre-command development program for officers. Um, new commander orientation, which is something we do for all incoming commanders, really kind of focuses exclusively on meeting regulatory or programmatic requirements for certain programs. Like for example, if you're a new commander and you come in, uh, the SARC is gonna say, hey, I need to meet with you. I need to go over. This is what the SARC program is. This is what I do. Melinda Hempstead or DPH, same thing. Unfortunately, those little meetings meet their programmatic requirements, but they don't necessarily tell you how to be a commander, right? Now, the ramifications of not doing any type of pre-command um, training for officers, they're absolutely huge. Um, if you look at some of these news clips, and literally all you have to do is go to Google News, and just type Air National Guard, Commander Fired, and you'll get boom, 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 all kinds of articles that'll come up. Um, so the risks of not doing a commander's job are significant, but even though the ramifications for an individual commander who doesn't do well are, are serious, Ultimately, it's our airmen that suffer. Um, I'm sure those of you in the room have probably had commanders that uh, didn't necessarily meet your expectations. And there's a, quite a bit of suffering that our airmen go through in organizations like that. Challenges. So when delivering any type of content like this, there are a significant number of challenges. Um, the first one, you know, we, we all have to do PME as officers, right? Um, that PME does provide some kind of foundational leadership type curriculum. The problem is PME typically doesn't deliver it in a timely fashion. Um, most people do PME distance learning. Thus, you get no in-person, um, you know, education on how to command. Um, you also don't get to hear from experienced commanders uh, in PME. Uh, therefore, it's very impersonal, it's incomplete. Um, many times by the time you assume command, PME is well in your rearview mirror and everything that you studied for and crammed during that time period has just been erased from your mind. Um, making Locally derived developmental education for drill status guardsmen is hard. Um, we only have your attention two days a month. Um, you know, maybe AT during the summertime, but it has to be available for DSGs. It has to be accessible for DSGs in order to be impactful. Um, we all have a preference for technical or readiness training over developmental training. We all want to learn, you know, how this works. I'm a cyber operations officer, right? We're, we're geeks. That's just how we are. 
Uh, and I get some smiles when I say that because geeks rule, right? Right, right, fellas? Geeks rule. Um, you know, we tend to want to know uh, about the, you know, latest uh, software, the latest technical trends, uh, the latest in intrusion detection technology, et cetera, uh, versus, hey, I want to learn the soft skills about how to be a future commander. It's wired in all of us, regardless of your AFSC. And units, they want to focus on readiness, right? Readiness is the priority. It's our number one priority. Uh, thus, things like developmental education typically take a back seat. Um, the last challenge is whatever we create has to be sustainable and repeatable. If this doesn't last, if this doesn't um, have staying power, uh, you guys are going to forget it. Uh, it's not going to make a difference. It's not going to move the needle. So these are some of the challenges that we've, we have. We thought a lot about this. Uh, the wing leadership team um, worked hard to kind of address uh, some of those challenges and the solutions that we put forward. And ultimately, this is what we co we've come up with. Uh, essentially, a curriculum that focuses predominantly on the why and the how of command, okay? Uh, we want to address the soft skills, as I call them, but ultimately it's getting to that why and the how, especially the how piece of it. Thus, if you look through the different blocks of training that we have um, planned, and I'll show this again in a, in a moment so you can see how this ties into the overall responsibilities of command. You see, um, you know, I'm, the SARC's not up here briefing about SARC programs. The DPH is not going to come talk about the DPH. Um, you know, we're going to address some of those how questions. Uh, my goal ultimately you know, is to add to your toolbox uh, as leaders. So as we deliver this, um, one of the things that we had to keep in mind is valuing your time as airmen as well as your unit's training time. I could have very easily, instead of making you come down here for an hour, I could have very easily said, we're going to Camp Dawson for a week. We're going to do this. You're going to drink from a fire hose for a week. Um, to me, that type of training isn't as impactful as something that is more um, kind of slow, gives you a little bit at a time over an extended period of time. We have a habit when you go to those types of training events where uh, you walk away from it and within a week that knowledge is gone. So we wanted to do something that was a little more deliberate, a little more slower paced, and ultimately valuing your and your unit's training time. So we've spread this out over a three-year period. 12 blocks of training, one hour a quarter. That's all I'm asking. Uh, I think it's worth your time. It's definitely worth my time, uh, as well as the folks that we have lined up to do this training. Because one of the things I want to point out is, yeah, you're going to hear from me in a couple blocks in here. But we've got our wing HRA set up. Laura's going to come in, teach a couple blocks for us. Uh, I have uh, Chief Williams. He's going to come talk about first sergeant roles and responsibilities. Uh, the relationship between a commander and a first sergeant is vitally important. Um, we have some graduated commanders going to come in and talk to you, credible folks that I feel have been successful in leading their organizations. We have an, even have a retiree, Lieutenant Colonel Matt Bethel, who's going to come in and teach one of our blocks. So the focus here is, you know, again, on that how piece. Um, so again, we're focusing on delivering this training in small but impactful sessions. You might have a little bit of homework along the way. Uh, not too much, though. Target audience, um, yeah. Captains with more than two years time and grade, majors with less than two years time and grade. But there's a lot of people here in this room today that don't fall in that target audience. And I'm thankful for that because it means you're interested. It means you want to learn. 
Uh, you want to hear what's going on, and ultimately you want to develop yourself for what may be coming down the road. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to be here today, even though I made you, right? Um, we recognize that as this goes forward, uh, people are going to miss some of these class sessions. We are a busy organization. You're busy as airmen. You've got TDYs, deployments, other commitments that you've got to meet. I know you're not going to be able to attend all these sessions. Uh, so today, I'm mic'd up. I'm recording this. Uh, we intend to record at least the audio of all of our sessions and to share that for you going forward. Not quite sure how we're going to do it yet. Eugene wants to, uh, he suggested setting up a separate podcast and then making that available to you through our podcast app like we do the drop. Uh, that might be the direction that we go, but we haven't firmly settled on that yet. But if you can't be here for whatever reason, it's okay. Um, I want you to be here. I want you to make an effort to be here. But if you have commitments that are going to keep you elsewhere, uh, I totally understand. But, you know, please try to, try to catch up with anything that you've missed. Um, ultimately, your wing leadership team uh, hopes that you view this developmental education program as an investment in your education and development as an officer. Uh, we have an obligation to do this. We have a responsibility as the senior leaders of this organization to help develop you. It's in the regulation. I'll cover it in just a moment. Um, this is part, not a whole, but part of our effort to do that. And I hope you see by us committing our time and energy to this that we care about your development as an officer. We care about your leadership skills and what you would potentially bring to a future command down the road. Thus, uh, we're going to commit the time and energy to try to help uh, build that toolbox. Now, command opportunities are limited. Um, I can tell you the majority of you in this room won't command a unit or an organization. I think as officers, regardless of our AFSC, regardless of the fact that we're rated or non-rated, everybody know the difference, right? Rated are our aviators. Um, Non-rated are anyone that is not an aviator. You may know the difference between a line officer and a professional officer. No? A line officer actually goes back to uh, the days of the Royal Navy and the concept of a ship of the line. Uh, a, someone who is eligible to command a ship of the line is a line officer. Uh, within the modern Air Force, uh, line officers are individuals eligible to command. Professional officers are officers that are not. Uh, that includes uh, medical corps personnel, uh, includes JAG officers, chaplains. Uh, now, our medical folks can command medical units, right? Surf P, medical group, uh, but they are not eligible to command other units. Nevertheless, you just never know where your career is going to take you. Uh, Christian Capice, he was a JAG officer here at the 130th Airlift Wing, uh, career lawyer, excellent lawyer. Uh, he actually switched from a professional career field, became a line officer, went back to school, was our FSS commander here at the 130th Airlift Wing. Um, went back to be a professional officer again as a, as a JAG. Now he works in state headquarters as an 06. He did an excellent job in FSS. Uh, but I would bet as a lieutenant or a young captain, he never thought that he would be anything but a JAG officer. You never know where your career is going to take you. Now, regardless of whether you become a commander or not, the skills that you'll learn here in this program, I hope, will ultimately allow you the ability, uh, it'll ultimately enhance your ability to lead airmen, 
self-reflect on your own actions because leadership is a lot about looking in the mirror as well as better appreciate the decisions that your commanders and senior leaders make. I'll tell you, um, commanders are not often given clear-cut, easy decisions to make. Uh, we live in the gray quite a bit. Uh, we have hard decisions to make at times. Usually they involve discipline of airmen. Um, there is no perfect answer or solution to every uh, question that comes up, especially when it comes to airman discipline. Uh, thus, they have to make hard choices. Sometimes, as followers, we look at our leaders and go, oh my gosh, why did they do that? Um, sometimes it's best to kind of take a breath, put yourself in your commander's shoes, and try to look at things from a little bit of a different perspective. As a developing officer, it's okay to go to your commander and say, Sir, um, do you mind if I ask uh, how you reach this decision? Ma'am, do you mind if I ask uh, what was your thought process? What went into this? Who did you consult with in making this decision? That's an appropriate question for an officer to ask. Now, they may not tell you the full story. There may be some privacy concerns at play but certainly they can talk a little bit about their thought process, all right? It's okay. Um, I am the program POC for this. Any questions that you've got about it, uh, come to me, please. Uh, be glad to, to field those. All right, before I get into the meat here, uh, I'm going to talk about the responsibilities of command. Um, why am I here talking about the responsibilities of command. Well, um, just a little bit about me. I've got 31 years time in service. I spent eight years as an enlisted person. Uh, the rest of that as a commissioned officer. I have a kind of unique career in a lot of ways. Um, when I commissioned as a second lieutenant, literally I graduated from the Academy of Military Science and three days later, I had my change of command ceremony as the communications flight commander. So I was commissioned as a unit commander. With roughly 23 years of commissioned experience, 14 of that has been in command roles. 14. I've commanded units at the flight, squadron, group, and now serving as the wing's vice commander. I'm probably the most experienced commander in the West Virginia Air National Guard. I am one of only two people in the history of the West Virginia Air National Guard to command units in both wings. Been on the Joint Staff as the state's J-6. I've served as the state's Director of Staff for Air, which deals a lot with a lot of programmatic programs. Even though you're not a commander, you're dealing with a lot of personnel and administrative matters surrounding higher level command. I think I'm prepared to teach this class, and I hope you guys will appreciate it because ultimately I want to try to share my experience with you. That's a component of what all this is about. Uh, now I will say uh, for the cyber officers in the room, and I know there's several of you here today, when that happened for me, there was only two communications officers in the entire state, me and Bob Frankenberry. Okay. Uh, I think we counted the other day, and it's 14 or 15. Um, the transition from the communications to the cyber operations career field for us has had a tremendous impact, and there is so many opportunities available for you uh, that simply didn't exist. Thus, I don't think you're going to see people being commissioned as uh, second lieutenants and as commanders uh, like that again. Um, at least I hope not. It was hard. Uh, I'll be honest with you. It was hard. Um, thankfully, I had a lot of good NCOs. I had some really good mentors. I had a great commander in uh, uh, General Page Hunter. She was a lieutenant colonel at the time, and she was the MSG commander. Very understanding, very patient with me. Um, I had a strong support system behind me. Uh, but there's a lot of stumbles along the way. Um, right out of the gate, I'll just share a little story with you. Uh, right out of the gate, 
Um, very first uh, issue I had to deal with was about three weeks into command. Um, right after I got out of AMS, had my change of command ceremony, literally the very next day I sent about 15 of the folks in the conflight on an annual training deployment over to uh, Ramstein Air Base in Germany. Uh, we got to do really good, fun stuff back in the day. And uh, they were there for two weeks. Um, one of my senior NCOs was in charge, and uh, they did really well there, and they came home. And one of my senior, N or the senior NCO that was in charge came to me after the trip and said, sir, I've got a problem. Uh, what's that? Well, uh, one of our senior NCOs uh, started a relationship with one of our junior airmen on this trip. I had an, an E-8, brand new E-8, um, started a relationship with an E-4. Uh, it was an intimate relationship. They didn't hide it. It was something that was shared uh, amongst everybody that was there. It was fully consensual. There were no issues with that whatsoever. But my NCO uh, IC of the trip had concerns about fraternization. There was no conflict as far as a chain of command perspective. The airman was not part of the senior NCO's chain of command, but again, the fraternization regs, if you look at it, that type of relationship is, by regulation, not kosher. So right out of the gate, I'm presented with a problem. What do I do? What do I do? Well, I'll tell you right off the bat, your JAGs are a great resource, right? I got, we got some JAGs in the room. There are tremendous resources that are available to you. They're not going to tell you what to do, but they'll tell you what your left and right boundaries are what your options are. In this case, ultimately, I took no disciplinary action, but I had a counseling session with both of them. I explained the situation, and I asked them to knock it off, and they did. And both those members went on to continue to be successful in the organization and uh, do good things. That enlisted senior NCO retired from this wing as a chief. So sometimes we all might get a little bit off the trail. And it's important that we have a correction every now and then. And that is a commander's responsibility, as I'll show you here. All right. So AFI 1-2, commander's responsibilities. This is the Bible. That's what they say, the Bible for commanders. Whenever anyone talks about something as the Bible, little b, not big b, right, as the Bible uh, for a given topic, that means it should be the authoritative source, and it should be full of information, guidance, direction, and dare I say, wisdom, all right? However, AFI 1-2, if you look at it, it's only six pages in length. Six pages, wow. Something as important and crucial to the Air Force, commander responsibilities, is only six pages. If you take out the introduction of the glossary, you only get four pages of meat in there. Four pages. Gosh, you look at the dress and appearance reg, 160 pages. You look at the officer and enlisted evaluation regulation, 312 pages. But commander's responsibility, only six. Why is this? Well, fundamentally, most regulations, they're going to tell you the why, they're going to tell you the what, but they're also going to tell you the how. The dress and appearance reg tells you how you will wear your uniform in in-depth detail. They'll tell you what kind of stitching you can use, if you're going to sew on your accoutrement. They will tell you how you have to wear your hat. They will tell you how your insignia will be, what patches you can wear. Etc. It is very detailed. Very detailed. Same way with evaluations. It goes as far to say, in this block, on this form, you can only put this. Alright? 1-2 does not tell you the how. It gives you a little bit of the why. It'll tell you some of the what. But it's not going to tell you the how. At all. What this comes down to is what 
I like to call the balance of science versus art. It actually says in the regulation, the art of command, all right? There is a science and there is an art to command. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that here more in depth in a moment. So this regulation, 1-2, is broken down into three main categories or sections. Commander conduct, duties and responsibilities, and commander's intent. Starts right off the bat with commander conduct. This is the area where if you screw up, it is the most visible. If a commander does not display exemplary conduct, what does exemplary mean? It means you are an example for others, right? If a commander does not display exemplary conduct, it is the area where people will see it first. And ultimately, if that commander is, uh, displays any type of corrupt actions, um, actions that don't meet ethical standards, it leads to very visible consequences. And that's where you see the majority of those news articles, right? Nobody wants to be in Air Force Times, trust me. Uh, I have had friends who end up, have ended up in Air Force Times. There have been West Virginia National Guard officers who have had articles written about them in either Army Times or Air Force Times. It is a place nobody wants to be. Sometimes those articles have been written not at the fault of the officers in question, but sometimes it is about um, failures in commander's conduct. Right in the regulation it says, special authorities and responsibilities are inherent in command. I always think Spider-Man, Uncle Ben, right, with great power, comes great responsibility. It's the same way here. It's no different. Commanders are expected to display exemplary conduct as outlined by U.S. law. You can look it up. It's right there. It's actually codified in law the type of conduct expected of commanders. You have a legal responsibility a legal requirement to display exemplary conduct as a commander. And actually, if you look at the law itself, it's fascinating the wording they use. It's absolutely, I don't know, I geek out on this stuff, I'm sorry. But it says, to show themselves good examples of virtue, honor, patriotism, and subordination, Hmm. Patriotism. That is a word that I would say in today's society has been appropriated a little bit. Has a slight political connotation to it now. I don't think when this law was originally written in 1997, people would view the word patriotism the same as some people might view that word today. Okay? So, how do we interpret this? Well, I'll give you a template to follow. When I think of patriotism, I think about my oath of office as an officer. Right? We promise to support the Constitution of the United States, to obey the President and the orders of the officers appointed over you. Okay? The president is the duly elected representative of the executive branch of our government, elected by the people. We get a choice. We get a choice in who our president is. We get to decide within the privacy of the confines of an election booth, we get to have an opinion on who our president is one day every four years. That's kind of how I look at it. So when I reflect on my oath of office and I reflect on the fact that for me to display patriotism, what that means is I need to stay true to that oath of office. 
And I think the next word up here is important, subordination. I don't get to make all the decisions. I don't. The president makes decisions. The civilian leaders that are appointed by the president and confirmed by the, the U.S. Congress, they make decisions. The commanders that are appointed over me, all the way up through the chain of command, they make decisions. I can have an opinion, but I don't get to make those decisions. At lower levels, I get to contribute and hopefully shape the decisions that are ultimately made. I'll tell you, it only gets harder as you go up the chain, folks. It really does. You try to influence things that are going on above you, uh, you're not always going to be successful. Thus, again, to display true patriotism, I look at my oath of office, and I also reflect on that subordination piece because I don't get to make all the decisions. There's been a lot of things that have gone on lately that have been, that we as the military have had to contend with, that have been politicized, and they're quite controversial in society, to include the COVID-19 vaccination mandate. Now, that's playing out in the courts, right? There is, uh, it's been a constant change Thank God we have a full-time JAG officer here in Brad Dorsey that's been able to help us as a leadership team navigate these, wa these waters. Um, it's been a constant moving target. But again, um, I don't get to make all the decisions. Uh, so that's how I reflect on those words. Um, to be vigilant in inspecting the conduct of those persons under their command. I'll get to that one here in a moment. To guard against and suppress all dissolute and immoral practices. Again, I love words. Immoral, morality. Whether something is moral or not is probably one of the most ambiguous terms that you can use. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not. But if I'm a lawyer and I'm in court and I'm arguing the morality of a situation, I'm on shaky ground. I'll give you an example. Abortion. And again, another controversial topic. Regardless of how you personally feel about it, I think people on both sides of the argument would use morality in justifying their position. Okay? Morals can be a very ambiguous term. So how do we shape that as a commander? How do we ensure that we guard against our own immoral practices? Where is our yardstick? Well, the Air Force has standards of conduct. They have the joint ethics regulation. Those things define what we should do when it comes to how we act. So, again, there are tools that are available out there to help you navigate these things. Sometimes those standards don't wholly align with our own beliefs. But again, I've sworn an oath, and I don't get to make all the decisions, okay? And subordination is a key part of military service. And then to promote and safeguard the morale, physical well-being, and general welfare of the persons under their command. Doesn't mean you have to take care of them to the point that it hurts an organization. Um, what it means is that um, you have to create systems and processes in place so that your airmen are cared for. And that can be tricky, but it can also be taken too far. And if we got time, I'll share an example of, in my own experience with this. So duties and responsibilities uh, of command. We've talked about commander conduct. Now we're into duties and responsibilities. These are divided into four elements. Executing the mission, leading people, managing resources, improving the unit. Personally, I think these are organized in priority order. We have to accomplish the mission first. We lead people second. We need to manage resources appropriately, and we need to improve the unit. 
Uh, the, the reg 1-2 doesn't say they're in priority order, but I think they are. Let's talk about executing the mission. We do this in three ways. Our primary mission execution, it's very dependent on the unit, okay? But as a unit, you have to look at things like your unit's doc statements for your UTCs that you're assigned, your mission essential task lists, those types of things to determine what your actual operational mission is. Um, Afrogen readiness. Um, there has been quite a bit of changes in this recently. I would encourage all officers to keep up to date on the AFRGEN concept as well as the MAFRGEN or AMC specific version of the AFRGEN concept because this is a little different than the old AEF uh, construct. But ultimately, we execute the mission by ensuring that our members, that our equipment that's assigned is ready, ready, for, ready to go. And then Mission Assurance Command and Control. It's important that we effectively execute command and control through all, all phases of mission execution. We have this new concept now called Mission Command. What is that? It's about a commander developing and communicating their intent to their airmen. And the reason is, if you can communicate your intent to airmen well enough, when you're not there, they're going to carry it out. And the intent is that if you're in a denied, degraded environment, like the Pacific Theater, and you're facing a near-peer threat like China, and you have uh, members assigned to your command that are forward deployed, and they are completely cut off of communications, they will remember that intent and they will carry it forward. Okay, that's mission command. That's what that's about. And that's what we're asking airmen to do under the ACE concept. Leading people. This is right out of the reg. Effectively leading people is the art of command. This is where the art comes in. Uh, one of the things that I always try to tell people is ultimately when you're leading people, you have to be true to yourself. What do I mean by that? Well, um, let's take Colonel Priest for example. Colonel Priest is not a rah-rah cheerleader. You guys know an ops. He's not a rah-rah cheerleader kind of leader. That's not him. If he would come up here and be a rah-rah cheerleader kind of guy, you would think something's off. Like, it, he's a man of few words. If he would come up and do like I'm doing now and speak for an hour on a given topic uh, when he's just addressing the troops, not when he's teaching a, a class, you would think something's wrong. That's not him. What kind of leader is he? Well, first of all, he's someone who leads by example. He's the wing commander of this wing, but he is a fully mission qualified instructor pilot, evaluator pilot, and he has helped physically lead this wing through conversion. He has set the example. I think all the air crew members in this room would say he has set the example in that regard. I talk to wing commanders from other wings all the time. And they say, I don't know how Colonel Priest does it. What do you mean? How does he stay qualified in the aircraft and still be the wing commander? Well, because he leads by example. That's how he leads. Because he's a man of few words, when he speaks, people listen. And those of you that may not know, but if he's unhappy about something, you will hear about it. He will not go into in-depth detail, but he will tell you. He's very direct, and he trusts that people will listen and that they will take his guidance to heart and do their job. That's how he's wired. So again, you got to be true to yourself. Who am I? I'm a consensus builder, all right? I like to talk to people. I like to get out. I like to talk about things that are going on. I like to talk about the why, why we're doing things. I like to share information with people. Why? Because I want you to
to take what I'm telling you and join my train and hop on board and let's do things together. That's how I do business, all right? Be true to yourself as a leader. That's part of the art, Why? because ultimately, when you think about what is art, if you ask 10 artists to paint you a sailboat, they will, but they will all look distinctly different. They're still paintings of sailboats, but how they have executed that vision is completely different, all right? It's no different with leadership. There is no one path to success. There's no one way to effectively lead airmen. There's many paths. But in evaluating all those things that are available to you, a commander has to be true to themselves, in my opinion. Now, ultimately, what we're talking about when it comes to leadership is creating and maintaining a healthy and supportive command climate. That's what we're talking about. Commanders talk about their climate all the time, a or they should, right? They should. A unit climate fosters good order, discipline, teamwork, cohesion, and trust. Good order and discipline. What is good order? Well, take the example that I gave you just a moment ago. I had a senior NCO said, hey, I have a problem. I had an issue that may have involved fraternization. I could have done nothing. I could have said, thanks, Sergeant, appreciate it, we'll see you later. Is that maintaining good order? What does that do? It leads to animosity, it leads to a lack of trust, it undermines people's faith in me as a commander and ultimately hurts my command climate. Did I do any discipline in that situation? No, I did not. I just had a conversation. But it's all about maintaining good order. Airmen expect certain things, right? They expect an environment that's going to be uh, free from harassment, assault, and discrimination. They expect to be treated with dignity and respect, and ultimately they want to be included. Those are your targets as a commander. Uh, and that's all part of maintaining uh, a climate uh, that's healthy. Effectively communicating with airmen. Man, this is hard. We struggle with this all the time. Look, I'm old school. I am. Uh, even though I embrace technology and I have my entire career, um, I struggle with it because it, it does change when it comes to how you communicate with folks. You know, Facebook's for old people, right? Uh, you know, you've got Snapchat, you've got all kinds of ways that folks that are young that are coming into this organization communicate with each other. Uh, I watch my kids and, you know, I'm like, who is this person on your Snapchat? Oh, they go to such and such school. Really? Yeah, yeah, I've been talking to them about so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. Really? You ever met him? Nope. You're having in-depth conversations. You're, I mean, I, I've had, not necessarily my kids, but my niece has started whole relationships just based off of Snapchat. And I'm like, this person goes to a school that's like a county away, and how, how did you meet them? Oh, they're friends of friends of friends, and we start a conversation, and I like them, and what is going on? I mean, this is just, it, it blows me away. Thus, effectively communicating with airmen, especially young airmen, is a, a very difficult challenge. I teach a class at Marshall uh, on cyber warfare in their cybersecurity program. Um, I have discovered in the last couple years that my jokes, they don't understand because <laughs> I, I consistently reference things like Friends and Seinfeld and The Office and uh, Star Wars movies. And I mean, I, I believe half my students anymore have never seen a single Star Wars movie. And that, that hurts. <laughs> it just hurts. But again, how do, I, how do you reach those people? 
because you have an obligation as a commander to reach every one of your airmen, even the ones that are underperforming, even the ones that are disgruntled, and you just struggle to have that conversation with them. You have to reach them and effectively communicate. If you noticed in advertising for this course, not only did I send an email out, not only did I talk about it at commander's calls, not only did I foot stomp it with your group commanders during the week, I did a Facebook video, etc. right? I'm just trying to get the word out on why we're doing this with folks. And I'm trying to uh, more effectively communicate. I saw Melinda just walk in the back door. This past week was, our, was Suicide Awareness Week. You saw on our social media platforms a concerted effort to get the word out about this important topic to include our DPH and our wing commander coming together to make a video talking about this. All right? We're, that's one of the ways we're trying to more effectively communicate with folks. And I'm telling you, it takes work. It's not easy. Um, fairly and justly administer discipline. Fairness and justice. Again, more ambiguous terms, okay? I would not want to be a lawyer in today's environment. Um, for example, sexual assault. I say this all the time. Our victims of sexual assault deserve justice. However, justice in the system that we have is neither swift nor whole. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is the process takes a lengthy period of time and that victim who deserves um, swift restitution, um, unfortunately a perpetrator in that circumstance has rights. Whether they're guilty or they're not, they have rights and those rights must be upheld. Uh, we have an obligation as commanders to do that. They deserve due process, and they also deserve fairness as well as the victim. Um, you have to balance those things. Therefore, from a victim's perspective, justice is neither swift nor whole. What do I mean by whole? Well, sometimes, even if the perpetrator is guilty, there may be circumstances that limit the option the commander has to administer discipline. Like what? There's a thing called sanctuary. Anybody know what sanctuary is? Sanctuary means you have more than 18 years time in service, but less than 20. And if you fall into that time frame, if we want to administratively separate you for misconduct during that time period, it requires Secretary of the Air Force approval. Now, I've been down that road in cases in the past, it's a fairly high bar because the SECAF tends to view the entirety of an individual's career where they may have served with honor and then had a, an instance where uh, they've committed a, a grievous wrong. And the secretary has to decide, am I going to take away this person's retirement? That not only benefits them as individuals, but their families, etc. That's a tough call. It requires a lot of work. It requires a lengthy review process in order to get the SECAF to render that approval. Thus, at times, commanders are left with imperfect circumstances where maybe the SECAF's denied the request or um, the amount of time it's going to take to process it, the member the perpetrator in this case will reach 20 years of service. That's an imperfect answer, but again, it leads to justice not being whole. Train the force and the unit. Develop airmen. Hey, what am I doing today? I'm trying to develop you all, all right? We have an obligation to do this. Quality of life engagement. What did we do last night? We had a power park game, right? Several of you were there. I recognize by faces in the audience. It, it rained in the beginning, but then we had a great time, right? We work hard. Our um, um, community action team works hard to plan events so that we can offer things to our, our airmen 
that enhances their quality of life. But one of the biggest ways that you can enhance quality of life for airmen is make your uh, requirements meaningful, make your training meaningful, and value their time while they're here. And when they're not here, value their time when they're with their families and they're living, living their personal lives. It's probably the best thing you can do for their quality of life. Managing resources. This comes in the form of both human capital resources, funds allocation, execution, and stewardship. Ultimately, we must be good stewards of taxpayer dollars. They trust us with that money. We also contribute to it. We should be good and responsible stewards of it. Uh, effectively manage, account for uh, assigned equipment, sustain and maintain uh, both operational and environmentally responsible facilities, uh, publish guidance to document unit-specific processes and standards when necessary. This one is potentially key. The reg may tell you something, but it may only go so far. Um, take the extra time to make sure your unit has lined out a local OI or a local instruction that more uh, in-depth defines uh, the process or the, uh, the procedure that's being followed. Uh, value and be good stewards of airman time. Okay, Here's another area where you've got to plan deliberately and effectively communicate to value their time. If you're calling people on a Thursday before drill and you're saying, hey, gosh, I really need you here tomorrow afternoon, is that valuing their time? Hell no. Hell no, it's not. If they show up for drill and they're not doing much, is that valuing their time? No, it's not. I actually, in talking with our folks in maintenance here recently, one of the things that we as the leadership team have encouraged folks in maintenance is make sure your drill status guardsmen, when they're here for drill, that they have a wrench in their hand during a part of that time. That's probably the biggest reason why maintainers start to not be happy about the organization. It's because they're not actually doing their job. Value airman time. And improving the unit. Uh, the CPI program, cross, uh, continuous process improvement, ultimately that is the benchmark of a highly successful organization. You've got to ask yourself all the time, and you have to challenge your people, what are you doing to make your unit better? Strategic alignment is crucial. How do unit level goals and objectives match organizational strategy? Uh, we'll have a whole block on this. I'm going to teach it because I'm actually passionate about it. I'm not going to go into it in depth here, but when we have this block of training, I will show you what I have done in the past, how I have aligned my units, not this wing, but a previous unit's organizational goals and objectives to strategy. Okay? Um, again, you know, do your calendars and your budgets match the strategic plan? Uh, are you using performance metrics uh, to ensure that you're driving towards those goals and objectives and you're reaching strategic alignment? Uh, you know, as commanders, we have a responsibility to be aware of critical processes and constantly seek to improve them. Ensure that we are applying appropriate risk management principles. Ops does this all the time. Maintenance does this all the time. I don't think we in areas outside of ops and maintenance apply risk management as much as we should. We do, but I think we could do it more. I know entities like SurfP, they do a pretty good job with this. Uh, but I think we could all learn some lessons from ops, maintenance, and the SURF on uh, risk management principles. Uh, CCIP, um, we have the legal authority and the responsibility to inspect subordinates and subordinate units. Now at the wing level, this is what our IG does, right? They help us to do uh, vertical inspections, uh, horizontal inspections of our unit. 
we work to bring in outside entities to come look at our processes and evaluate us from a compliance standpoint. But ultimately, a robust program will find your deficiencies and help you to improve readiness. Commanders should never be afraid of write-ups. Never. If you have an inspector and they come in and they say, look, this is messed up. It's okay to disagree a little bit. It's okay to know that you might have a local way of doing something that doesn't wholly align with that inspector's thoughts. But listen, take the write-up, work it, work to improve. Your people will respond to write-ups, trust me, they will. Uh, you put something in iGEMS, uh, they will respond to it, and it gives you a great way to, to track it, and it's a great way to document process improvement. Um, but, you know, again, the CCIP focuses on both internal self-assessments, typically done through MCT checklists, but our organizations have a lot of internal processes. Maintenance has QA, right? Ops has Stanaval. Those are all part of this. Um, there are a lot of sections. You know, COM has a QA function. Um, you know, FM has an internal audit function that they do that all falls into self-inspection. Uh, but it's important to bring in folks from the outside, not just when you have to, but volunteer to bring outside entities to come in and look at you. One of the problems we have here in the wing is we solicit for Air Force Audit Agency inspections here. We say, hey, commanders, do you have any Air Force Audit Agency uh, inspections you'd like to do next fiscal year? Do you know how many we typically get? Zero. So we come up with some, right? Areas of interest that we think are valuable to us. Use these things, use these tools. Again, any findings should drive root cause analysis and lead to process improvement. I love how air crews do business. Every time you fly, what do you do? You debrief, right? Debrief. And you critique each other on your performance during that flight. And it is a, uh, it's an environment where everyone is encouraged to come forward. People are comfortable to self-admit, I screwed up. Man, I did that turn to base late. And they have conversations about it. Why? Because they're seeking to improve. Uh, that's something that we should all strive for. Data-driven decisions. Um, I'll talk about this also when it comes to the strategic alignment piece. Uh, but again, you should base your decision-making, when you can, on data. Uh, ultimately, though, the goal is to avoid decision paralysis. There was a former commander of this organization who was famous for not making decisions, for um, wanting to study a problem so long, wanted that, so, there's people nodding, okay? They, they understand what I'm saying. Uh, this individual wanted to study a problem so long, they wanted a perfect solution to every problem. There is no such thing. Commanders have to be willing to accept the 70% solution and move out. Have to be willing to accept the 70% solution. You have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to accept failure in your people. Maintainers are going to screw up. They're going to break airplanes. They're going to lose tools. Those things are going to happen. But when they do, you have to come forward honestly, openly, in a non-attribution environment, talk about it, and work to fix it. Now, if there's true malfeasance, or true incompetence, or a pattern of behavior that's unacceptable, well then that may lead to more further corrective action or even discipline. But you gotta create an environment and what's the word I've used most here? Trust, all right? But avoid decision paralysis. Uh, then finally, the regulation covers commander's intent. 
Um, with a clear understanding of the intent of an assigned mission, commanders, again, have the responsibility and authority to act and trust subordinates to complete their assigned missions. This is your responsibility. To that end, commanders will display exemplary conduct. They'll work to establish a healthy command climate. They will have a propensity for action. They will avoid decision paralysis. And they will deliberately, not ad hoc, not off shooting from the hip, they will deliberately execute the duties and responsibilities of command and apply the tenets of command and control. All right? This is 1-2. So, we've talked about the regulation, what it says about the responsibilities of command. I've mentioned that the regulation tells you the what and the little bit of the, how, of the why, but absolutely none of the how when it comes to command. I will tell you, there's a little hint. Almost every regulation that's out there, if you look in the roles and responsibilities section, there will be a block that will say unit commander. And it's going to give you little clues as to what your responsibilities under that regulation are. That's the problem for commanders because almost every reg that your people have, you're in it. And you have to take the time and the effort to read, to look it up, and know what your part is in that, that process. Um, again, these areas, they're going to tell you the what, but they're not necessarily going to tell you the how. That's, that's something you'll have to figure out. Recognizing that leading people is the art of command and that there's no one way to lead, there's no one singular path to success, the remainder of this course is going to focus on equipping you with tools that you can add to your toolbox. That's the purpose here. All right? Over the next 11 blocks, we're going to work to equip you with tools so it can help you answer the how to do the what. Does that make sense? And let me show you what I mean by deliberateness. All right? These are our blocks that we have laid out in this pre-command officer force development program. And next to each block, I have highlighted the area of 1-2 it's intended to focus on. So again, we're helping to give you the tools that can address the how you can improve the unit, how you can manage your own conduct as a commander, how you can manage resources, how you can execute the mission. That's what my goal is here. We're not going to answer every question, but I hope to enhance the tools that you have available to do, to do this. Now, there's a couple things I'd, I'll highlight here. Um, there's a section on things like improving your own emotional intelligence and 360-degree feedback. One of the biggest things as a commander that you have to do is you have to self-reflect. you got to look in the mirror. And sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes you make mistakes. Uh, sometimes you're not doing what you should be doing. It's okay. Once you've found it, fix it and work to get better. One of the tools available to commanders is a unit climate assessment. It's required within six months of assuming command of a unit. Uh, many of you have filled out unit climate assessments and you've wondered, do my commanders really read this thing? Oh yeah, we do. Um, we read it in depth. Um, that is one way a commander can self-reflect on his unit, the climate that's in there, and his or her own role in it. Um, that self-reflection piece is very important. Thus, we have to understand our own emotional intelligence and we have to seek to improve it. One of the worst things a commander can be is reactionary, angry, 
a bully. I've seen it. There are folks that think that commanders have to be tough and they have to speak loudly and, and be direct and, you know, uh, push people. I've been in environments where commanders say, find a path to yes. Okay? It's not a bad thing. Find a path to yes. That means don't just accept the first roadblock put in your way. Find a path to yes. But I watched over time as that sentiment became in practice, not in words, but in practice, no is an unacceptable answer under any cost. And I watched people work really hard to bend rules or live really deep in the gray. And I watched people compromise their own internal ethical standards along the way. And I personally was pushed to the very brink of mine in the process. How do you think I felt about that command climate? I didn't like it. Matter of fact, I would argue I have a little bit of PTSD from it. Okay? Um, thus, you know, reflecting on what you're saying and the message it's conveying to the organization, how you're communicating with folks, how you're building cohesive and inclusive teams, how you're promoting diversity within the organization, how you're assessing the unit and what it does, all these things are important. And we are doing this very deliberately because bottom line, we're here to invest in your ability to lead our airmen because we care about them and we want them led well. And you all are gonna be the one to do it. Because for me personally, there's a lot more runway behind me than there is in front of me. And one of these days, one of you will be up here teaching the generation that's coming on behind you. All right? So, any questions for me? Nobody? All right. Well, I'm going to hand out a survey here. Uh, take some. I hope I have one for everybody. To be honest with you, you guys showed up in force. I love it. I may not have one for everyone. If I don't, um, stick around here, and I will go upstairs and get some more printed out. But it's just a very short thing. Before you leave, I want you to fill this out for me. And uh, you can uh, leave it up here on the stage. But again, if there's not enough copies, which I'm pretty sure there's not going to be, I'll print some out here real quick. And uh, uh, we'll get them for you. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about the 130th Airlift Wing, you can find us online at www.130aw.ang.af.mail. If you have questions about this program or the 130th, you can contact us by email at 130.aw.public.affairs at us.af.mail.